to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Welcome to the show, everyone. And we're absolutely delighted to be welcomed by Hash Chowdhury. Hash, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, really, really glad to be on the show and it's been a, it's been a long time coming. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure and honour to have you on the show today, Hash. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. So it has been a long time coming, Hash. Obviously, um, you know, we, your, your reputation is uh, is incredible, you know, very well well um, documented within within the community. Um, and you have been on our radar. And it's, it's fantastic to finally um, have the time to actually spend with you today. Uh, by way of an introduction, you are currently... Um, kind of sales leader, first man on the ground, first person on the ground at Cribble. Um, you guys are absolutely smashing it right now. Tell us a little bit about Cribble and the, uh, and the journey. Yeah, so um, at the highest level, what Cribble does is we take uh, streaming de telemetry data uh, optics, uh, bring it into our platform. We manipulate that data so we can either reduce, transform, enrich, and then ultimately we route it to the destination of your choice, right? So Cribble, there was really no market for Cribble maybe about eight years ago because there was a very um, select few data destinations that you could send telemetry to, right? There was, you know, Hadoop, Elastic, Splunk. But obviously today it's a really, really fragmented market, right? So you have the likes of Snowflake, as you guys know very well, Datadog, uh, sorry, Databricks, um, uh, Mongo, you know, there, there's a whole slew of um, platforms that you can send it to. And really, based on your use case, we can direct the traffic and the data and the telemetry to the right platform. So the right data to the right platform uh, going through uh, Cribble uh, stream. That, that's at the highest level. I'm sure we're going to uh, get into it a little bit more detail as we go through. But uh, that's, the, that's the cliff notes. Yeah, absolutely. And it does also help to reduce your Splunk spend as well. But we'll talk about that later. It's fine. <laughs> so I, I suppose <laughs> with regards to obviously your career, um, Hash, I think what's really interesting and the reason we were so keen to get you on onto the show is because um, you've obviously transitioned, um, you know, various stages in your career. You're now more of a kind of a thoroughbred um, kind of set in sales role. First, mat, first person on the ground at Cribble, but actually your career started more on the technical side. Um, you know, if, if we go back um, a few years back now, Sybase, obviously you were in professional services and then transitioned into pre-sales um, before you obviously then, you know, took more of a pre-sales role within, uh, within Splunk. So, so just tell us a little bit about the, uh, the early journey, how you kind of made that transition and then, you know, kind of bring us up to, uh, up to that period in Splunk where things really started to change for you? Yeah, I mean, look, I think you started like, sort of like midpoint. I mean, if you go right to the start of my career, I was in a dungeon uh, in, in High Wycombe in, in the server room, right? So that, I mean, that's ultimately where I started my career. So I was a database admin at Dun & Bradstreet, um, uh, straight, out, straight out of uni. And, you know, th this is actually quite an important point because when you leave uni, you don't actually know what you're going to do, right? I mean, uh, someone told me this it was like university doesn't teach you anything it actually teaches you how to learn right um, so your real learning begins actually when you leave uni right um, so I started off I mean I wanted to be uh, obviously did computer science and maths wanted to be technical uh, got very fortunate to get into a graduate training program um, at Dun & Bradstreet straight on to multi-terabyte, one of the largest databases um, in EMEA actually for Sybase. Uh, so that's where I cut my teeth. And there was a couple of key influential people. And one of the, one of the most important people, um, or I would say initial um, role models was a guy who knew everything, right? I mean, literally he knew everything about Sybase. I mean, he was like amazing, right? He's like this, uh, I think he was in, must have been like 58 and uh, touching 60 year old guy. I mean you know, been around the block a few times, but it literally had the answer to everything. And, you know, having that technical excellence gave him credibility, right? And so that was the first, um, that was the first inkling of me trying to pick a technology and be the best at it, right? And I chose data management, right? 
Uh, and little did I know at the age of 21 that that would be, you know, uh, a very um, smart decision. But, you know, back then, uh, databases were very structured. It wasn't, as, like I said, as fragmented as it is today. So that was that was the start. Um, moving over from that, I, I mean, it was a really interesting point because I was doing the same thing every day, right? And literally walking to the office at nine, I could tell you what time I was going to have my tea and biscuits, right? Which was 10.30, right? Uh, I knew what time lunch was and I knew what time home time was, right? It was, a, it, was, it was really prescriptive military type situation. Just wasn't for me. Uh, I kind of, kind of tapped out after a year what I needed to do. Um, and then I thought, you know what? I, I want to get more onto the commercial side. So I went off to do my MBA. Um, so to, partly it was... I wanted to do my MBA. Partly, I wanted to go back to being a student. I'll be perfectly honest. Right? <laughs> work life, uh, work life was a little, um, you know, um, hectic. So I thought, okay, let's let's go and kill two birds with one stone. I, I went to Sheffield, uh, did my um, MBA, um, or as my first boss post MBA said, Master of Bugger All. Right? That was his. Uh, that was his. <laughs> that was his acronym for it, and he was right. Um, it, it doesn't really. Once again, it teaches you how to learn. Right. Um, so I came back and ironically, the expertise I got, um, and this was the second connective tissue uh, to my first uh, gig at Dun & Bradstreet, because I was actually a domain expert on Sybase, um, Sybase actually hired me, right? Um, so I went off to become a professional services consultant for Sybase. It was the most amazing... To be a professional services guy at that time was amazing, right? Especially at a company like Sybase, because they um, ran the banks, right? Um, I don't know if you know, but pretty much all financial software uh, storage platforms run on, running on Sybase, right, in the city. So I was part of a team um, that basically, um, we call them, they, we called ourselves the smoke jumpers, right? Because when basically when shit blew up, they used to give us a call. And um, and and the funny thing was that when you had to get on site, it was by any means necessary, right? So if you had to go to Munich or you had to go to Paris, you need to get there. There was a specific SLA. You had to get there and get stuff done, right? So you'd be sitting around for a couple of weeks and then the call would come. Um, you know, I was like, you know, it was almost like the SAS. I mean, I, I'm not saying we're anything like the SAS, but, you know, it was like you get the call and you have to be, you know, in uh, um, on site within uh, within an SLA. So so that was great. Super high pressure. Right. Um, the stakes are extremely high. Uh, the visibility is extremely high. Right. When your production systems go down, there's you, you've got to have a, a clear head. So did that for a couple of years and then uh, really. Um, the professional services side, I was what I was getting interactions on the vendor side. So this is my first vendor engagement, right? I was getting interactions with the other parts of the business. One of the legs of the stool was sales, and the other legs of the stool was pre-sales, right? And you know, professional services were these guys, you know, on the other side of the room, and we kind of, you know, there wasn't really any uh, clear communication between those two parties or three parties. So. One day I was having a chat with the pre-sales guy and he was tapping me for information. I'm like, I need to do this, this and this. And then something happened where he couldn't make the meeting. So I ended up doing it, right? As a, as a just, you know, I had nothing else to do, right? So uh, I turned up and, and, and did the meeting. And the sales guy basically said to me, you should, you should actually think about joining the team, right? Uh, so gave it a couple of months and then I, you know, effectively went into pre-sales uh, from there. So that, that was my kind of foray into into pre-sales loved it and this goes you know to, to what i was saying before it was a different day every day right one day i'd be in you know you know i don't know sheffield the other day i'd be in london you know it, it, it's really nice variety talking to different people understanding different problems and really trying to plug the technology with the with the business problem so so that that was a that was at a high level how i got into pre-sales and really inching my way into the sales game um, so I don't know, does that answer kind of what you're looking for? <clears throat> yeah, of course, definitely. So obviously, um, you know, there's, there's a saying that no one actually, no one actually goes to uni to, to get into pre-sales. And I think this is a classic example of, you know, of, of that. And, and I think what's, what's interesting is, 
you've continued that trajectory and, and obviously part of the themes of this of this of this podcast is to really kind of explore your your ability to, to kind of pivot so obviously you know you you, you went to kind of attach May and um uh Kana and then ca technologies um and then you did a 12 year or just under 13 year stint at splunk um Tell us a little bit about that because obviously there was a you know there was a lot of change you you, you know that's the first time you were also exposed to that to the playbook um, that's been so heavily featured within this series so just tell us a little bit about your time at Splunk. So uh, you know I think I think the entire career has been kind of leading up to you know I was very entrepreneurial right so um, one of the things most people don't know, I actually used to own a restaurant right so um, yeah I'm I'm not going to go into details about that it's very uh, uh, that that's a, that's a whole series in itself but the the net net is that um there has been i have been driving towards that non nine to five right so i had been looking for that company that i can say i'm not an employee i'm an owner right if that makes sense we're all shareholders right and i want to make a difference right and how do you make that difference well you make the difference if you're not a number right you are an active contributor right in the success or failure of that enterprise so you know um uh, i actually got reached out by two people one of the people i actually was working with at um at ca uh he'd recently left um and he said you need to you need to check out um you need to check out uh, splunk um i actually had already downloaded the product like three four weeks before because i heard about it through um uh, SourceForge and you know a couple of other um, chat groups. So I was, I was actually interested in it because it was a problem that I was facing at a technical level. And then the VP of Sales rang out um, from uh, Splunk, Frank Swain at the time, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to be in London. Let's let's meet up. Uh, you know, I'm looking to get my first SE." Uh, so that's kind of, that was kind of the genesis. But one of the things I will say, and this is really really important, every person I consulted in my network about Splunk in 2007 said, don't do it. Literally every person. And I think I know the reason why they said it because it was a rough and ready platform and it was effectively the, the term we used to use back then. Uh, it was like grep on steroids, right? Grep is like a uh, Linux search tool, right? It was, and actually, that's what it was. But when I spoke to the CEO at the time, uh, you know, uh, Michael Barn, it was the vision of him and his head of sales that really, because it's not where you are today, it's where you're going, right? And if other people would have understood or listened, because I can't say that pitch as well as the CEO or the head of sales, right, uh, from an outsider. If you hear it from them and you believe in them, right and you believe the market opportunity and you believe the customer pain then i'm pretty sure all of those people would have said yes right but because you're only looking at one data point from one person who's on the outside not even on the inside the answer would have been no right so so luckily um i i was at a point in my life where i could do crazy things right so i could i could do you know you can do those you know um uh, you know in the middle of a financial by the way 2008 was when you know, people at RBS, Bishopsgate were walking out with cardboard boxes, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember, I, I remember, I used to, I used to be there like every every day, and you know, as you guys know, um, uh, <laughs> you know, bonus time. There's like Porsche, Ferrari, Bentley. They're all just throwing keys at the brokers, right? Um, that year, I think it was VW, Ford. And Skoda, right? <laughs> Just like, and no one's buying, right? It was a, it was a bloodbath. It was an absolute bloodbath, right? And that was the time I decided to go to a new company that no one's heard of in a market that doesn't even exist, right? Um, but yeah, um, you kind of just have to see past that. And this goes back to your pivot point, right? Um, you know, it's not what the company's doing today; it's where it's going to potentially no one can see more than 24 months out but 24 36 months out right you had quite a swift progression within um splunk what why is that i say swift it was steady progression it was obviously over 13 years but obviously you know you can really see a clear progression and growth in in, in yourself so 
you know, why is that? And, and what did that progression look like? Look, um, it would have ended very quickly if you had, if I didn't deliver. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the brutal reality of it, right? Um, uh, you know, you say what you're going to do and, and do what you're going to say. And, you know, it, it, that's number one. Number two, it's the team, right? It's never about one man. It's never about, you know, one team. It's about all of the functions working together in unison. And, and let's be honest, right? Uh, it's about the product, right? Um, so my, uh, my progression and, and whatever success I've had is not least down to the people who built the product, right? And the strategy and vision that we had uh, from our sales leader back at the time, right? Um, my small part, I would say, you know, for whatever you want to call it, it, it was pretty significant in the start. It, it, obviously, as more people join, it becomes le uh, a lot less significant. Um, you know, I set myself personal goals, uh, made sure the team delivered, um, and really acting as a team player. So yes, I was in pre-sales, but I wasn't just doing pre-salesy type stuff, right? Um, you know, we used, to have, we used to have this thing called a duocracy. Duocracy kind of works when you're small. It stops. It actually starts to be an inhibitor as you grow as you grow up, right? Because then you need formal processes. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, just just being a team player, having having and maintaining a good culture, right? You guys are in the HR business, right? Uh, culture is really really critical, um, and it's not how well you go through the good times. It's really about how because there were some really tough times, right? I mean, I remember um, a year after I joined, there was a massive rift. We had to get costs under control. Uh, and it's how well you go through that process, right? Um, so there's there's a number of different reasons, and and you know credibility, integrity, and trustworthiness are three things that I think will always stand you in good stead, whether you're in this business or any 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 other business, right? And I think I've never compromised on those three. I've always been you know uh, pretty transparent, uh, good, bad, indifferent, whatever the message is, uh, up my chain of command, right? So uh, so I, th those are a few of the points and. You say 13 years like it's a dirty word, and I kind of agree that, you know, 13 years is, a, is an extremely long time, but that was across, you know, three different geos in, in like six or seven different roles, right? So, so I spent time in, obviously built the Emir business, um, had the opportunity uh, to go and head uh, financial services business in New York, which is obviously where Palladino comes in. Um, and then from there, coming back to EMEA to um, effectively open and run the emerging markets and the APAC uh, and have, have, a, have a foray into APAC. Uh, so I was assisting in my last year with APAC as well. So, so yeah, it's been a number of varied roles. And, and like you said, the ability to pivot, right? Um, uh, the, the, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry, Hash, if I can jump in there, I'd like, you know, I, th I think it's interesting. I think there's an ability to be able to pivot, but there's also the desire to be able to pivot, right? Um, what, what do you put that desire to? What, what are the drivers that are making you think, do you know what, I want to take on these new challenges? And, you know, why are you looking to reinvent yourself across so many different areas? This is a, a, a great question, um, probably because... Uh, probably because I've been thinking about it for the last, um, you know, couple, last few weeks. And COVID, over, COVID, you know, made um, made us all introspect a little bit, right? Um, and the best way I can sum it up is this: um, what you did yesterday isn't going to work today. What you do today isn't going to work tomorrow. If you just take that, you know, saying, and extrapolate to the current market climate, right? Um, last year in a macro environment is a very different period to what we're facing just in the first couple of weeks of January of 23, right? You can't apply the same logic that you did last year to this year, you're gonna fail, right? And similarly, you can't apply the same logic, I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but you can't apply the logic of this year to next year, right? I apply that to my career moves, um, my personal decisions, right? Um, and pretty much comes into my thought process in most things that I do, right? Is what was contrarian thinking a few years ago is now mainstream now, right? I, I used to, I mean, you know, a great, a great example is Salesforce, right? Uh, Salesforce was in the cloud business 
probably three, four, five years before it was a thing. And then, guess what? They were seen as visionaries, right? It's sometimes it takes two years. Sometimes, sometimes you're way off on the timing, right? Um, you know, follow follow the markets. I've been calling for a market downturn uh, just from looking at the, the the macro indicators on debt levels, interest rates, inflation, all of that type of stuff um, for the last eighteen months, right? And sure enough, it's here. I was I was I was out, but you know, the the underlying uh, parameters were there. So the net net is you've got to reinvent yourself you know, every year, every two years to really grow, right? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that's been my thought process for at least last 10 years, at least since I started Islam, right? So is that something that you were quite, um, quite prescribed about? Is it, is, it a, is it a thought process that you sit there and, and, and evaluate or, or, or is it more instinctive? You know, what, what is it that is allowing you to kind of make these pivots and, and how much of it is actually planned versus reactive? Yeah. Or luck, right? I mean, look, let's be honest. Or, yeah. I, mean, let's, let's, I mean, none of us are the smartest people in the room. Uh, you know, I always say you can be lucky once, you can be lucky twice. You know, I've, I've, not, I've not seen a... You know, I've not seen a lucky person like, you know, who made decisions like this 10 times straight, right? It just doesn't happen. So then you have to ask yourself, what are the external data sources that you're using to make these decisions, right? And, and you know, I, a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of my mentors um, are not actually from, a lot of them are from this business, but a lot of them aren't, right? So a lot of them are in finance, um, you know, marketing there's a whole you know very bunch of people that i kind of lean on um so looking at a problem from another perspective so look if you look at if you look at our business right now um in the technology space the macro climate what's happening in in ukraine what's happening with you know um, china and taiwan what's happening with semiconductors what's happening with supply chain all of this kind of factors in to your decision you I mean you you might not think it does but it does right so sometimes you have to look completely left field to get those data points to your point Simon to to help you make those decisions right it can't it can never be just off a of gut it can never be just luck right you can be lucky once or twice but it's not going to be consistent um, and 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 listening to people that are smarter than you right so I'm an avid podcast um, you know uh, viewer um, uh, you know, trying to consume as much information about historical as well as current, um, um, you know, uh, events to really help me shape which dis which direction I'm going to go uh, and what things I'm going to do and what I'm going to prioritize. Obviously, it's you know I completely agree with the with, with the sentiment. Obviously, um, you know there are elements of luck, but at the same time, you have choices to make as part of that journey and you know different people are presented with better choices some more more choices and better choices than others but at the same time um when those choices present yourself it's about that thought process of how you then you know continue to progress so uh, so obviously your, your progression was 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 evident you know you you took leadership positions um you know within the organization you really grew with the organization but again you continue to put yourself out of your comfort zone um, and probably just when you thought you'd nailed it you know you went on to the next thing the next thing the next thing and you know without fast forwarding too much obviously you find yourself in a situation now at cribble where you're no longer within the pre-sales or the comfort blanket of, of pre-sales but actually first person on the ground in a brand new territory in a new market in a, in, a, in a different region and absolutely you know smashing out of the park you know you know we, we can we, we can be humble but at the same time you you, you know if, if you're not number one you're number two globally um within the sales organization um i'm the, I'm the first Google. loser <laughs> you're the first loser well th th there you go i mean um Absolutely. So I, I suppose, you know, given that, what is it that allowed you to have, or what, what, what are the foundations which have allowed you to have the success that you're experiencing right now? And, and what were your first steps in that, in that journey? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so obviously the conversation we just had prior um, leads into responding to this question right which is what was the thought process right um, so the first thing I said to myself was when I left Splunk I'm taking I'm taking two months out right and and you know obviously needed to start before but I could have started a lot earlier but I decided to take two months out first month was to decompress right and completely clear clear my mind right because when you've been running at that speed it takes time for you to come back to idle right that was the first month the second month was planning and I think I still think to this day that was the best four weeks I spent because you can't plan when you're in the company you've got enablement you've got to meet people you got to you feel the obligation to jump on calls and you never come up with a plan you never come up with at least your three or four pillars so I spent those four weeks sitting on a beach with a notepad right and just really with no distractions headphones on um, and coming up with what are if you had to distill success down right what would that look like right and putting those three or four key pillars down on the ground and then building on that now you mentioned those numbers they're yeah okay they're they're, they're impressive i'm not gonna i'm gonna lie about it right but um but i wasn't focused on that because that's a byproduct right that's the the, the revenue the percentage attainment the new, new logos that's a byproduct you can't start with the byproduct right you've got to start with the inputs right what's the raw ingredient coming in right so that i kind of distilled it down to to four um and then it was a then it was just honestly it was a grind right because you know i, I think you've already mentioned it there was no one else it was just me right um so i had to kind of do all of the technical heavy lifting um i'm not a lawyer unfortunately so i had to lean on hq for a lot of the legal stuff um all of the sales and negotiations um you know uh, mutual success plans customer success that all kind of fell on me and, and i don't regret anything and i'll i'll say i'll say one more thing right i'm better for it uh for one reason uh, i have a really nice saying uh, a quote which is scarcity breeds innovation right and it is so true in personal development because when you remove all of your resources you have to figure out how to do things better you just have to so you know i i heavily leverage my technical tooling kit internally um i did a time and motion study and surprise surprise 70 percent of it is technical right so i figured out a process to really you know button that process up um figuring out qualifying calls uh figuring out how to manage you know apac as well as EMEA you know just from a time management perspective priority management perspective um, the Middle East obviously run as you know uh, on an offset week so Sunday is a work day how do I deal with that um, so yeah there's a lot of moving parts and yeah you're always consciously consciously anxious right because um, you know every decision you make is gonna have a consequence right could be intended it could be unintended but there's gonna be a consequence right and and that's why we do that's why we do what we do right that's why i do what i do because every decision i made um nearly two years ago um has led up to those results right so yeah that, yeah. that to, to, to answer your point it, those four weeks of peace calm and the ability to have um noise-free thinking uh was was super critical super critical do, do you owe a lot of your you know, deeper technical background to the success that you're having at the moment. Do you think that plays a big part in it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I'm being blunt, yeah, I don't need anyone um, to do what I do. Um, so I'm pretty much I could do it on my own. Um, I have I have artillery support now. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely we're a very technical product. And most, most products coming to market are technical products, right? So I spent a lot of my time talking to the real users of the platform, right? Uh, talking to the SOC ops guys, talking to uh, data management guys, 
um, I actually didn't really want to get higher up because frankly, if you don't prove value at that level, you're going nowhere anyway, right? It's just a waste. You're actually wasting the executive's time by talking to them. So I, I focused a lot of my time uh, building the community, uh, building the channel, uh, evangelizing. And in fact, the first hire um, that was made outside of me uh, was a marketing person because I said, I want awareness, right? Um, right now, I see that as the most important um, skill set that I need. Um, and yeah, so, so the second guy in EMEA was uh, um, the marketing director, right? Uh, and that obviously, you know, you, you need to kind of um, figure out how that cadence works, right? So once again, there, there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different activities that led up to that. And by the way, what I did last year is very different to what I'm doing this year or, or coming up to the end of this year, right? Uh, our year ends in, in two, three weeks time. Um, so I've already got my plan for next year um, and it's going to be it's going to be markedly different to what I did last year for sure. Absolutely. So I, I suppose in terms of, um, you know, there, there's a couple of themes that you, you've, you've touched on. Being first person on the ground, um, one of the reasons why you've had, you know, the success that you've had is also around your ability to kind of leverage the channel. So just tell us a little bit about why that's important and how that's helped you have the success that you're experiencing right now. So you you just said it, right? So one man, right? One man can only do so much, right? So I, I, once again, I did that time in motion study and said, where am I spending most of my time? Uh, and obviously it's, um, you know, it's, it's in the technical validation piece, right? Uh, it's in the proof point, right? Um, I can't, I can't put myself to do seven, eight, nine, ten POCs, right? or have architecture meetings or, you know, do, do demos. I just can't do it, right? So what I did was I, I had a split-pronged approach where I would get numbers on the board and do that personally myself. But what am I going to do next year, right? I can't, I, I can't carry on doing this, right? Um, so I focused on scaling agents. So there's a couple of scaling agents, right? Obviously, it's VARs, right? So value-added resellers, right? It's technology alliance partners, you know, the Cisco's, the Core Lights, the Sentinel Ones, you know, Elastics of the world, right? So how do I incentivize, how do I make their life easier in selling their product, right? How do I, how do I either make it quicker, faster, cheaper for them, right? That, that's ultimately it, right? Um, and then we have the, the big GSIs, right? So the Accentures of the world, you know, the Capgeminis, and, and, you know, between those three, right? You obviously have a different time horizon for each one, but you've got to start it from day one because what most companies don't realize is they go to a channel motion in year three and then it's too late. It's too late. So I had a very frank conversation with my management saying, look, you need to give me six months right, uh, to get this because if you don't give me six months now, it's going to be very hard to build the channel three years down the line because you, your, your revenue expectations just won't allow you to invest in the channel. Whereas the revenue expectations now, or you know, when I started, were not that much, and now they're considerable, right? But the channel is delivering, right? Is that because you have to invest into the channel, and that will take you away from other activities, which will which will force you perhaps to miss your your, your number if 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 your if your number's too high? Is is that is that is, it's a is time that, management? Is that what thing. you're referring to? It's a time management thing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's you know, 16 hours in the day, you know, give or take a couple of hours, um, you know, where am I going to spend my time? Am I going to spend it technically training surgical players in the channel for a one in 10 return? Or am I going to spend with customers, which I do anyway, for a one on one return, right? Uh, that That's the calculus that you have to make, right? And, um, and yeah, I've walked away. I, I, I've actually either do something properly or don't do it there's been some i'm not going to go through the names but there's been some very very large accounts that i said i can't do this right you can't do this as a one-man show right you just there's going to be problems right so i've i've personally qualified out right and focused on yeah. biting off what i can chew right as opposed to something that i'm going to choke and die on right Sure. So with regards to the, obviously, again, being first person on the ground, you know, there is no established channel. 
Did you have relationships you were able to leverage or, or are those relatively new targeted relationships? H how did that come about? I, I think this goes back to the, the point uh, you mentioned earlier about opportunities and, and, um, uh, and options, right? Um, I'm very, very lucky. I've, you know, I've got a very extensive network across EMEA, um, uh, APAC, and, and um, well, I guess that's global, right? EMEA, APAC, and Americas, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, you know, uh, I've, I've nurtured those relationships over the last 15, 20 years. Um, and yeah, there was a standing start. You can't do this without having nothing, right? You know, you just can't, right? You can't, you can't walk into this game uh, without having your key channel partners that you're going to target uh, locked and loaded, right? Uh, so I had probably, I would say 30%. Um, and then I had to nurture the rest of the 70%, right? And it's almost like you're selling to the channel partners, right? They are my primary customers, right? If you think about it. Um, uh, and you have to give them uh, as much focus because ultimately the, no the amount of focus you give them will dictate how much focus they give to customers about Cribble, right? That, that's, that's the reality. <clears throat> I think you, you've obviously spoken about your success. Um, and just to paraphrase a couple of points, obviously you spoke about you know, the importance of having a very strong channel. You spoke about, you know, your success based upon, you know, your ability to be able to technical discovery and really understand what customer needs and demonstrate value. Um, but something that we picked up on and that we spoke quite a lot about when we spoke previously was, was, was all about empathy. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on, on empathy and, and how you use that to your advantage? Yeah. So, I was on I was on customer side for a very short period of my life, right? So, um, you know, when I started off, but I still remember uh, the interactions that my management used to have with Sybase, right? Uh, who were the consulting uh, partner uh, within Dun & Bradstreet. And then, you know, you kind of fast forward that into, you know, some of the larger accounts. Customers have a very tough job. Right. I mean, they are. I mean, if you're the head of SOC for a large financial institution, the pressure is immense. Right. I mean, you make one wrong mistake. And they're going to pin you to the cross. Right. I mean, it's just going to be awful. Right. And there's an old set security saying, right. Um, attackers just have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky 100 percent of the time. Right. And. If you look at the stress levels and the number of balls these people are juggling, if you can just empathize with that situation, like just for an hour of your day, and you can figure out how do I just remove like a couple of balls from the from from the stack of stuff that they're trying to manage, that goes a very long way, right? So I'm just, I mean, it's a very simple. We're not people, you know. People say we're in sales. I, I don't think I'm in sales, right? I'm in the need fulfillment business, right? That's what I'm in, right? If there's a need, right, then I can help you, you know, fulfill it, right? Uh, that, that, that's, that's the net net. I'm not selling you anything, right? Um, you have a specific problem. That problem uh, is costing you, you know, one pound, two pounds, um, and I can make it go away for 20 pence, right? That, that's basically... Uh, that's basically what you have to try and identify in a very smart way. Um, and you have to do this by triangulating because, you know, there, there's, a, there, there's a saying that nobody will ever tell you the real problem. You have to ask why four times. You know, it's like that annoying uh, cousin that you got or nephew that you got, right? It keeps on saying why, right? It's, but why, but why, but why, right? you literally have to get to the fifth why to really understand the key driver for that pain, right? You have to keep on digging, right? And sometimes you have to do it in indirect, sometimes you have to do it direct way. But unless you understand that, uh, you can't really help anyone, right? Um, that, that, that's, the, that, that's where the empathy comes in, right? Is, is really walking a, maybe an hour in someone else's shoes to really understand, um, you know, if there is a fit or there isn't a fit. So, so um, Hash, obviously, you, you spoke about the that kind of triangulation and the importance of really identifying pain when you're when you're engaging with your your 
your customers. But what are your primary objectives? You know, when you're in those meetings, what are the first steps and the first objectives that you're really trying to go after? So, so you know, like any first meeting, um, people are sizing you up, right? So, you know, the, the, the key thing that executives and uh, customers are really trying to get to the bottom of is credibility, right? Uh, do I want to spend time with this guy, A, for the next hour, or B, for the next meeting, right? So uh, conveying your credibility, integrity, trustworthiness um, in a very, you know, uh, scenario-based way is kind of going to be a lot of the first meeting, along with understanding their environment, understanding their team makeup, understanding where the company, obviously, you know, fully expecting myself to do the, um, uh, to do the prereq on, on the company background, you know, anything that's been happening in the news, anything newsworthy, um, the specific area of technology that they're in or, or business that they're in, um, and really understanding and distilling down the two or three things that would make this conversation beneficial to both parties, right? Um, and sometimes those are very apparent to both people, and sometimes they're not apparent, right? And that can happen both ways. Sometimes a customer might think, oh, Cribble's a great fit, and I'm thinking, actually, it's not, right? And vice versa, right? So really trying to get to the point where you decide is another meeting um, beneficial to both people, right? Because look, uh, I mean, uh, um, we mentioned in the earlier uh, question about um, empathy. I don't want to waste anyone's time, right? Uh, you know, I'm not in the business of getting meetings for the sake of getting meetings, right? Um, if a meeting comes out with no action items, it's probably not a great meeting, right? It's probably not a great meeting. So, or, or next, uh, you know, or, or, or constructive next steps. Um, so, that is what I kind of get to um, in in the first meeting, right? And then every meeting after that, if it, if there is another one, um, kicks off a prescriptive process in technical validation, right? Really trying to identify uh, use cases that drive corporate initiatives um, that ultimately make everyone involved in that chain of command look like rock stars. That's my goal, right? Is, you know, everyone who touches Cribble or Splunk or whatever product that I've been fortunate to be associated with look like, you know, Dons. That, that's the, yeah. that, that's the net net. Yeah, so it's interesting. You talk about obviously the corporate initiatives and also the, 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 the some of the technical challenges. And one of the things we've spoken about previously is the fact that you kind of understand that if, if a certain client has a technology stack with specific, you know, technology vendors, you're likely to have some sort of hypothesis of pain that that company's likely to be experiencing around that. So how does that really help you and, and how do you kind of navigate that and, and to, to really help you get ahead in, in, in that scenario? So, so firstly, it's a body of knowledge that has been kind of, you know, tacitly built over, you know, 10 years, right? Any technology past 10 years is probably not relevant, but, you know, you really got to be on top of your game on understanding the vendor landscape over the last five to 10 years. Um, and then empathy, right? Once again, customers will tell you, I, I don't, I don't use those products, right? I don't, I don't, I don't get hands on on those products. I'm expecting, you know, them to tell me or a professional services partner to tell me or, or whatever, right? Uh, so, you know, you, you build up these battle cards over, over the course of, of, of years and months, and then you automatically know vendor A. And they say, oh, but by the way, you know, are you having trouble, you know, uh, configuring it across a, you know, multi-site deployment? And they say, oh, by the way, I, funnily enough, that's exactly what's happening, right? Um, and that's that's what I mean by building the credibility because you're you're kind of reinforcing your, you know, technical knowledge by actually explaining to them what the problem is. And if there's a yes, but let's dig in deeper. Let's let's have a let's have a deeper understanding of. Of what's going on right so um, and sometimes to be fair it, you know then you have to delineate between is it really the vendor or is it the the engineering team right I mean ultimately you know you you know 
you got cooks and you got chefs, right? You know, which 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 one is it, right? Um, so 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 yeah, I think I think um, th there is a lot of untold. No one's ever going to come out on the first. And by, by the way, also on the first meetings, no one's just going to come out and tell tell you everything, right? It's just that's not the way life works, right? Um, so you kind of have to. Inf there's a lot of inference that goes on um, within the first couple of interactions for sure. <clears throat> I think it absolutely does. I think it's really, really important. Um, I want to go back to an earlier comment that you made very at the very beginning of this um, interview, Hash, which was, you know, you personally didn't know what to do um, when you finished university and you kind of put your feet in and then, you know, put your feet back out again. Now, is there any advice that you can give to any listener that's looking to either get into software sales or software, um, go to market per se? Um, you know, is there, is there the right way of going? If you were to go back and look at, you know, your steps into this, would you have changed anything? <laughs> uh, I was actually, um, I was actually a very below average student, right? Um, I, my maths teacher, I still remember, I still remember, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Hutchinson, uh, bless him. Um, he, he said to me, uh, Hash, uh, I had very low expectations of you and you disappointed me. <laughs> so that's how bad I was, right? Um, the, the problem I think kids have today, uh, you know, I've got, um, uh, I've got a nephew and, you know, different challenges, right? And we all, you know, obviously we're all old now, but um, different challenges kids have today, but I genuinely didn't know what I wanted to do, right? Um, and my electronics teacher, um, well, there was one course, and it's, it, it was quite, um, I still remember it, there was one um, uh, class that we had for electronics, basic electronics, and um, it was amazing. That was the thing that I liked doing. Why? Why did I like doing it? Well, because you connect things up and other things happen, right? And that sense of achievement of having a plan in your head and then putting a bunch of components together, making them work to the desired outcome, that was great, right? So I was like, and that, that's all I did. Forget English, forget history, forget geography, forget everything else. All I did was electronics, right? I got a soldering iron, nearly burnt the house down five times, right? But so my mom was like that's the only thing you're good at right that's all you're going to do right so that that's all i that's all i did and then i went to do my a levels and i got introduced to um programming right basic bbc basic right and that's how old i am right um and that was amazing so it's once again it was without burning yourself right with a soldering iron and without it taking you know a week to figure it out i could code something up and make it work and once again that instant dopamine hit and that was it it was the dopamine hit right because i, I <laughs> <laughs> that's the most nerdy like addict you're gonna get right is i cut code and i got high right and, and that's basically um <laughs> that's, that's what it is it's the dopamine hit. it was an instant reaction to a um to a outcome that you expected and then you realized right and that's when I decided that I wanted to do maths and computer science. That was the only thing I could do, right? Um, so to answer your question, Ollie, is like, I knew I wanted to be in tech because I wanted to get that dopamine hit. But now I get my dopamine hits on other stuff, right? Which is basically the customer interactions, watching other people get the results they want, right? So a customer has a pro really big problem. Are we talking? you know, a $10 million, you know, uh, GRC, you know, governance risk and compliance problem that they have. And I, in some way, shape or form, have facilitated them in achieving it, right? But that took a number of years to get to, obviously, right? So, uh, and, and, and uh, once again, I think uh, the, the point was made earlier that you don't fall into this game, right? I mean, you might do now, I don't know what they teach at university these days, but um, you might do now, but when I was doing it, there wasn't anything called pre-sales engineering, right? 
Um, so you kind of had to, you know, stumble your way into it, right? And technology is a broad church today, right? I mean, you could be a, a web developer, you could be a UI, a UX guy, you could be, a, you know, full stack developer. And there's so many things you can go into now. Um, and the only advice I could probably give uh, kids is, is fail, right? I mean, uh, you know, you talk about these millennials, I've got, you know, got this nephew, he just hates failing, right? And, and it's like, you kind of got to fail, right? Because if you don't fail, you're not going to learn. If you don't cut yourself, you're not going to heal back stronger, right? Um, so if you, if you think you're going to like it, try it. And if you don't, nothing's lost, right? You, you, if nothing else, you've got a bunch of learnings out of it, right? So uh, just don't burn your house down. Just don't though, burn right? your house down. Yeah, just don't burn your house down. Exactly right. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I think this is the point where um, you know we can really reflect. I think it's been uh, it's been an immensely um, insightful session with you today, uh, and I just want to pick out a couple of really key themes from 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 the from the chat today. And I think what 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 what's been evident at pretty much every stage of your career is that ability to pivot. You know, we use the word pivot. Um, and your ability to kind of transition your way through and, and really kind of, you know, readapt yourself and, 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 and that ability to kind of consistently find change. But I think what's fun, what's evident to me is that even though you put some of those changes down to a, a moment in time, some luck, and by your own admission, you perhaps weren't the most studious um, you know, student kind of in, in your early, in your early, um, in your early years, what you have been able to do is kind of piece together all the information that you need, put together a plan, assess it, and then make choices. And those choices have enabled you to be able to really navigate and build. And it's been that kind of building on top of that building and that, that, that kind of scaffolding of your career which has enabled you to get to the point now where you're completely out of your comfort zone once more, but because of the layers that you've been building over the last 20 years, it's given you the incredible success that we're obviously seeing right now. So I think it's been you know, fantastic spending this time with you. It's been a long time coming and uh, it's certainly lived up to the expectations. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No, I appreciate it. Appreciate it, Simon Olley. And uh, looking forward to uh, resuming the conversation, maybe on another podcast. Absolutely. No, it's been absolutely amazing, Hash. I really do appreciate your time. I think, you know, your ability to be able to pivot, um, you know, in, across so many different fields of software sales and to the position that you're in right now as an inspiration to absolutely anyone. So um, really, really appreciate you sharing in that story. Um, but to all our listeners, please do like and subscribe to our various channels, YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Um, but we look forward to welcoming you all back for another session very soon. Take care and thanks again.